Little Pete's. Little Pete's, man. Let's do it. I know the way. Uh, I trust him. <laughs> you shouldn't. Well. <laughs> As we sit here telling stories till it's quarter after three. The details are so gory, but that's how they're supposed to be. And this waiter must be wondering if we're ever gonna leave. Greetings and salutations. I'm John Kim Fay, and welcome to Talking at the Diner, the show where working musicians tell me their stories. And sometimes the waitress tells us a story or two about how many cups of coffee it takes to help her function after partying all night. Let me tell you, I love this town. <laughs> The town being, of course, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I met up with singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Rob Tate at Little Pete's, which is tucked away in a 60s-era high-rise called The Philadelphian. Rob has been methodically building up to the 2024 release of a full-length album called Here and Now, with a couple of killer singles in 2023, the first being Matilda and the follow-up, Spacefire. But his third single, End of the World, drops on November 29th, 2023, and we get to have a sneak preview. At the end of the world The stone will fall to the sea And rip through eternity This was my first opportunity to really sit down and chat with Rob, who, in addition to leading the Rob Tate Band, also plays drums with quite a few notable Philly artists, including John Gilbride, Emily Drinker, and Brittany Ann Tranbaugh. Our conversation went off in all kinds of interesting directions, from nerding out on great drum performances to discussing how an artist trying to find their audience navigates the music business in the streaming era. It was a really, really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy this chat with Rob Tate right here, right now, on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table. Talking at the diner. Uh, now, now, do you come here a lot? No, but uh, Little Pete's was a um, a favorite of mine in Center City. You ever go to the uh, one downtown? You know, I've never been to any of the Little Pete's. Oh, wow, I never would have found this without you. <laughs> Yeah, I walked in. I was like, I'm going to go get a job. There's no way I'm meeting him inside. <laughs> Thank you for that foresight. <laughs> Usually I wouldn't have it, so today the uh, four cups of coffee I had actually worked. So. Nice, nice. So this building is called the Philadelphian, correct? Yeah, the Philadelphian. And um, I used to work for DoorDash a lot, and I would deliver to this building all the time. I oh. never had the chance to like 
hang out and check it out. Now, was that a, uh, a difficult thing to do to like navigate this building? Um, yeah, it's a little wild just because like you have to you have to park, you have to like run the food in without getting a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> it was like I can't tell you how many times like I had some really suspicious like parking situations, especially around here. I bet. Oh my god, I would be like. And it's bad. It's bad to acknowledge this, but I needed the money. I'm <laughs> just like double parked on the corner. Listen, dude. <laughs> we all need the money. <laughs> uh, two. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Oh, cool. See? Oh, nice. And we uh, hopefully won't get... You have a preference? No, no I'm good. Ah, I love these. Post-COVID? COVID uh, sneeze guards. Can I throw you gentlemen here with something to drink? Absolutely. Could I get a cup of coffee, please? Yes. And the same. And I'll be right back. So, uh, you are not sure of breakfast person. Oh, I'm such a breakfast person. Mm -hmm. It's bad. Um, if I have the option, I would just have like three or four pancakes and bacon all day. <laughs> all if day. I knew that, it, I wouldn't gain a pound. Bottomless, bottomless bacon. Yeah, man. I'm trying. I'm trying to be good, but like, I figure I do, you know, I do my due diligence most days of the week, yeah. and when I come to a diner, oh, so we, this all bets are This is your cheat meal? I don't, I don't look at it that way, man. Okay. I look at it as I earn this. <laughs> I'm gonna do, man. I think I'm just gonna do over easy eggs and, uh, yeah. and some. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. Bacon and toast. It's the traditional. I was an over easy guy for years, and then uh, something switched, and I was like, I need it more raw. So now I'm sunny side up. Oh, I thought I'm you like, were gonna say just no, put not the egg on the <laughs> Well, or just crack it directly into my mouth. All right, guys, son. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Like in the, in the Rocky with a pitcher of raw eggs, <laughs> you know. Um, I remember in the, that uh, that song it, when I was about eight, four dozen eggs. I'm like, who eats four dozen eggs? Disney's like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how old you are, Rob, but um, I'm 33. Okay, so this is before your time. Um, back, the age back, card. back, 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 I'm playing the age card immediately. <laughs> back in the 80s, uh, you familiar with Richard Simmons? Yes. So he used to have a thing that was basically a late night infomercial for a product called deal a -Meal. Okay. And it was basically like a diet thing where it's, uh, you know, you had like cards, you know, it was kind of like a way to keep people honest, you know, like, mm. you know, like, oh, you get a vegetable card, you, like every time you eat, you like put your oh, cards, in, you know, an, an early form of like any kind of dieting app that you might yeah, see today. Yeah, it sounds like the early version of like a Weight Watchers. Or yeah. So anyway, in the midst of this infomercial, he interviews this guy named, uh, and I can't I can believe it because I've never forgotten this guy's name, but his name was uh, Hebronco. That's the last name? Okay. Yeah. And um, this guy weighed like 800 pounds. Yeah. And Richard Simmons would be like, what's a typical breakfast for you? Uh, four dozen eggs, two loaves of bread, pound of bacon. Do you need anyway. two more minutes? No. About four dozen eggs. We're ready. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Two you know how much eggs are right now? Woo! Um, can I get uh, two over easy eggs with uh, bacon? and uh, white toast butter, please. 
And fries request. Oh, home fries with uh, pepper salad. Is it? You got it. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> Could I get the identical order except with sunny side up eggs? Not identical. Hard to please you. <laughs> <laughs> sorry we had to make you write a little more. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Uh, I couldn't write that out. You couldn't now. <laughs> so you grew up in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. I think I read somewhere like Pine Barrens yeah. location. I grew up in a, a town called Medford. Oh, Medford. Okay. And, uh, and I was incredibly lucky. It's a beautiful town. I, I had a great upbringing with my folks. My parents both worked for like Martin. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, everything was great. Um, I started playing saxophone as a kid because my dad loved Bill Clinton. He'll never admit that's the reason that he convinced me to play saxophone. But he loved Bill Clinton. <laughs> Um, you just, uh, at one moment in 92, and uh, that <laughs> affected your whole life, Rob. <laughs> you should play saxophone. That's a terrible book. You should play. <laughs> you know what the worst part is? Do you ever play a woodwind instrument? For, uh, God, no. No, that, that was never my in, in my wheelhouse of ability. No. I never understood uh, tonguing. Yes. It's not a euphemism. It's, it's like the putting the tongue to the tip of your... Uh, your tongue to the tip of your teeth to yeah. attack the, the reed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I couldn't get it. I honked for years. <laughs> for years. For five years, I honked in saxophone. And for years, I thought, oh, maybe it's just a need to play a different saxophone. So I went from alto saxophone to tenor. Okay. And then I went to Barry. And I was like, this still is working. What? Why is that? This awesome? is also much heavier. Yeah. Well, no. Barry, I was so small, he had to put it on the floor. Oh. So I didn't have to carry it. Oh, that's, that's a plus. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I played saxophone, and I was a honker. And... By one twist of fate, my buddy Colin uh, in middle school was playing drum set and they were really trying to do drum solos. And I sat down and I could kind of do it. And my buddy's like, you should play drums. And I was like, okay. <laughs> that was it. And that was it. I, I got drum lessons. I joined the marching band playing drums. And, nice. And my, the professor there saw something in me and he forced me to get drum lessons. And it was all That's this awesome. weird twist of fate Happy accidents. Yeah. And uh, I have uh, been playing drums ever well, since. Well, you know, I feel a kinship with you because drums were my first instrument. Mm-hmm. And that is obviously like the gateway into not only like playing music and playing in bands, but also my first exposure to the desire to write songs. Mm-hmm. Over easy. Over oh. is for you. Oh, thank you. This is wild. I uh, guess. I'm getting. Uh, Thank you so much. Huge flashbacks here. Thank you. Does it remind you? Of that? Oh yeah, the old school Pete's. Yes. <laughs> I went from having to read notes, which I detested as a as a kid, to having to only to read one line in just the rhythms. Right. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> I'll take it. Half the work and uh, more of the play. Sounds but good. I think it's, you know, um, I took drum lessons for about. Probably a year mm-hmm. when I was 15. And um, it was very cool. I enjoyed it. But um, the, the guy that taught me was not a very disciplined teacher, I want to say. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I got away with like 
not studying my rudiments as much as I should have. Mm-hmm. And I was like, could you just show me how to play, uh, you know, every little thing she does is magic or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. Um, Good for you. Um, in terms of practicing drums or learning drums, I mean, Stuart Copeland was my guy. Um, and of course, I was only doing like approximations mm-hmm. of his actual playing. But like, there's a s- sensibility in his playing that I think still kind of remains in how I envision drum parts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I'm either playing with a drummer or like programming drums and logic, even, it's like I'm constantly thinking about. Well, what would be a fill that he might do, or like, you know, just that little bell tap in that moment. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like th- those are the things that kind of stick with you. Um, he was amazing at same as Ringo to the Beatles, like mm-hmm. right, putting something that's almost perfect to whatever the song was. I think about that song. Every little thing she does is magic. But also, I think about um, walking on the moon. Oh. Yeah, and like well, the, the creativity that, of using the delay and all that. I was gonna say, like doing the delay and like adding the reggae with the rock idiosyncrasies and his actual like the way he plays. Mm-hmm. It was so fascinating. And whenever there's like, I dislike whenever bands just kind of like uh, take stock drums and put it on whatever song because I'm like, you could the song is the how successful a song is is really determined by the drum parts and the vocal. If the drum part is interesting and it's it has a, a fingerprint, mm-hmm. people are more inclined to listen to the next minute of it at least. See, you and I are on the same page with that. That's like, about, yeah. Like, I totally feel like the drums inform everything. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And the drums and vocal. If it's just, yeah. But if it's just a bland, like, not thought out part, then... It, it kind of loses me. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so did you have any particular drummers growing up that you were just so into? And oh my god, uh, do you know who Steve Gadd is? Of course, yes. Mm. So you were. A- oh my god, I was a Gadhead. Mm-hmm. I loved his stuff. I've stolen so many Steve Gadd fills. <laughs> there's actually, I think this is a Steve Gadd. Like, there's a reel going around currently of him. Just doing like a little, very subtle little beat with, um, you know, ghost notes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like they just released a book. So velvety. Oh, it's like butter. Um, but he uh, he just released a, a biography, mm-hmm. and they have tons of footage they released, like him in the army, like playing like at eighteen, nineteen. Wow, like crushing. That's cool. Doing all this jazz stuff, and. Uh, he has like a book out about rudiments. Funny that you mentioned rudiments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll be my like holiday gift to you. I'll send. You. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> but like Steve Gadd, um, is amazing. Like that. Like talking about drum parts. That like footprint a song. Fifty ways to leave your lover. Um, right. What's the one? What is that song called? That's him. Oh my god, what's that song called? I play it with folks and I can't remember what it's called. Um, I know the tune. <laughs> yeah, what is it? No, just the two of us. Oh, just the two of us. Yeah, oh yeah. my god. Um, that's him. And if we try. He, yeah, exactly. But like, talking about writing a song. If you have an imprint or like a good drum part that isn't stock, that hasn't been used a thousand times, mm-hmm. 
it's it's gonna catch people's ears. That's why, like, yeah, yes, the popular songs today. I'm gonna be an old head for a second. <laughs> if if it has four on the floor, I'm like, okay, that's fine. But is there something different? Person, I'm personally a big fan of four on the floor when um, you just want that certain overdrive mm -hmm. mode, but that can't be all it is. You know, like it has to for me, like it has to come from somewhere. So that it's building the song into some kind of like momentum. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, John, I think we might gain two hundred pounds from all this bacon we have. Listen, man, <laughs> Little Peach value. They have. They give you your money's worth with the bacon. Well, we haven't seen. We haven't seen the, the bill yet. Uh, yes, please. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I got you. We both got shaky hands today. Oh, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'd be in big trouble. I was told not to do that again. Your secret's safe with us. What did she do? She partied all night. Oh, okay. I mean, we should have partied all night. <laughs> um, but so Steve Gadd um, and Steve Jordan, who mm -hmm. played with John Mayer and um, all these people, great studio drummer, mm -hmm. and he's the one that I've really like north starred in terms of like playing the songs to kind of a little more jazz leaning a little more studio guy mm -hmm. kind of leaning mm -hmm. yeah i mean for me i'll be honest jeff porcaro oh my god yeah jeff porcaro is amazing and i'm sure like steve lukather can write too man and like watching mm -hmm. steve lukather uh write uh <laughs> his parts for Toto or for Michael Jackson is just a marvel. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's amazing. Have you d dove into any of his stuff? Like Steve Lukather? Not specifically. I mean, familiar with like his most well-known work. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a big band drummer. Oh. And it's all I wanted to do. Like, you know, not Buddy Rich, but like be able to do like a big old band, like really loud and just aggressive big band playing. And then I went to school at UArts where it was awesome. I got to play all big band stuff. I wasn't the best at all, but um, I fell in love with songwriting there just because there were so many great vocalists and songwriters at the school. And I got the opportunity to freelance and play behind all these people. Mm -hmm. And I remember back then people going, I just want simple rock through keep time. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to I want to do the, the Steve Gadd thing. Can I do the Steve Gadd thing? And it just, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you learned no. what your role was <laughs> early. Did you um, take a songwriting class at UArts? Uh, yes. Uh, it was very basic. Mm. I'm always curious as to like how other people experience a class like that because I taught the subject. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to do it. So I'm just kind of curious as to like how that class was structured for you. For us, they really tried to do a lot of structure teaching, like form. Mm. I really, really, really wish they taught more about the lyricism side of things. Got you. Because that's what, it was way more important when and I got I think over. we would have had fun at Drexel, because that's basically what my whole thing was. Because I'm not a trained musician. Like, I don't... I can't discuss theory with anybody. Mm -hmm. And so it was always coming at it from more of 
how do you get inspired to write songs? Mm-hmm. You know, like what is what do you draw from? Like those are the kinds of things that I very often focused on. Although I had to cover the basics, obviously, but it always veered into um, you know what makes what's the difference between a, a good song and a great song? And to me, it's that intangible thing where you can tell that the writer is coming from like a very true place Mm -hmm. because you can write a very formulaic song that's like by all metrics like well that's a good song because it just checks all the boxes of like what people respond to what the ear responds to Mm -hmm. but you know I like songs or I prefer songs that kind of go off of that there was a quote that I always used, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it, it was like, uh, say something that is commonly said in an uncommon way. Is, mm. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. You know. That's really, that's actually really clever. I, I think, I thought it was. <laughs> because, yeah, like if you think of like a common phrase, they, people attach like, well, do you mean it like the normal way? And they try to mm-hmm. find out more. Now, did you, did you tell students in terms of like that, like trying to connect with people, were there like, what was the avenue that you would teach it? Like, like do you have a, to pick a couple artists, like how do, how do they write? Or how would you like do it more like, um, pick a couple tunes and like try to write like those songs? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, so basically, and it was always an interesting challenge because Drexel works in the quarter system, so you only had 10 weeks to teach the class. So just 10 sessions. <laughs> So, you had to, like, really kind of try to be economical with it. But what I would do is, once we got past, like, the nuts and bolts of, like, melody writing and song structure and, you know, those kind of basic things, Mm -hmm. when you started to get into, like, the artist side of it, it it came down to things that I actually found were very pertinent in my writing of my book, which is like, are you doing this in your true voice? How do you tap into that even? Because, you know, like a lot of what I would talk about is so much of how we're conditioned in our culture in particular is to not be vulnerable to protect yourself to project a you know a facade of i've got it all under control whereas for me like the key to breaking through that was to understand that the student parlance of the time would be like oh well this is corny you know this is cringy I'm like, in my opinion, by definition, if it's coming from your heart in a true way, it cannot be corny or cringy. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. And so that was like my constant like pounding away. And so, you know, like I would, I would try to like give examples of songs that I thought, man, this is not only an amazing example of the craft, but it's also like, it's tapping into something that's beyond the person's talent even. You know, like most of the, in all honesty, 
of all of the things that I do musically, I consider my ability to sing to be like the number one thing that, you know, separates me. Uh-huh. I'm not a great guitar player. I'm not a great instrumentalist at all. Disagree, but okay. Well, I'm, I'm serviceable for what I want to do. Okay. Um, but I do think that my ability to sing is a, a thing that does separate me out from a lot of people. But my personal taste, like, hardly any of my favorite artists are people that I would, that most people would be like, oh, that's a great singer. Joe Strummer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's, um, yeah. Lou Reed. So you're talking like classic songwriters that don't have really much of a, a range of a voice. Like, Yeah, but, but, the, but what they're putting across... They're singing about their lives. Mm-hmm. And people connect with that. And people connect with that. They, and they may not even connect with the specifics of it. They connect with the honesty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I, would, I would play all kinds of songs for ex- as examples. For years, I taught this Patty Griffin song called Making Pies. Mm, I don't think I know it. It's a sort of more obscure tune of hers, but it's this, it's it's like a character sketch, mm-hmm. you know, where, like, she puts you in the mind of this person, like, so deeply that you're just like, holy shit, like, it's so moving, which is a hard thing to do as a songwriter because, you know, it's very obvious that it's a character, it's not her. Mm-hmm. But she was able to, like, paint this vivid thing, you know. I would play songs like, you know, I'll Follow You Into the Dark. I mean, it ran the gamut. It was all kinds of different songs because I wanted to show, like, there's a million ways to do this. Mm-hmm. And you can take just about any angle. So I tried to, to really mix it up. But um, it was always trying to, like, show people, like, this is what next level honest songwriting is mm-hmm. yeah i mean everyone has their own lane but you mentioned a few artists that like again they're not considered like vocally proficient like for me i always think about i really loved the 70s because like mm-hmm. we had people that told really good stories and they weren't necessarily pro- like totally proficient and i'm gonna name a lot of gentlemen just because i that's what i love listen to a lot of the time but like Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Not a great vocalist by any stretch of the imagination, but an amazing songwriter. Every song connects with like a like a demographic. Mm-hmm. You know? Like that, Jim Croce. Yes. Not necessarily a good singer. You know what I mean? Paul Simon again, like yep. talking about him. But ooh, modern people. Chris Stapleton. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if people agree with this. It's it's hands down the best songwriter for me today. Right on. Because, like, he'll take a phrase, like you had mentioned earlier, and he'll just turn it on its head. There's a song he wrote called uh, Daddy Doesn't Pray Anymore. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole song, it's like talking about how he, he doesn't pray to God anymore. He went through all this stuff. And then by the end of the song, he realized, oh, his dad is dead. And they're actually like, burying him mm-hmm. when the song is taking place. And boom, just mind explodes. It's just like, yeah. it's, it's like a good movie. And you're, you're hanging along. Okay, this is what the song is about. And then all of a sudden, the turn comes in the third act. And then you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can really treat songwriting like that. Yeah, you can. It's very powerful mm-hmm. to write like that. In a, like you said, almost like a cinematic 
kind of way. I love that stuff. Yeah. And I'm not saying I can write like that at all, but I just love it. <laughs> like Bernie Taupin with Elton. Mm-hmm. Just classic stuff like that. And that, that kind of partnership is actually something that always blows me away mm-hmm. because they're I mean I don't know how often they're like I'm, I don't know their process but for for lyrics and music to be married that brilliantly and not be written by one mind or vision is kind of mind-blowing to me it's absurd in fact uh, have you seen the documentary on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road? Mm-mm. Okay. It's amazing. Okay. I'm going to geek out. We'll watch it. So they ran a cabin or a mansion somewhere, and they set up all the recording gear, and Bernie Toppin's nearby. Bernie Toppin comes by every morning when they're having breakfast and brings a stack of poetry or lyrics or whatever. And they'll be eating breakfast, and Elton will, like, play out the song. Like, he'll just make up the melody on the spot, mm-hmm. and they'll record it as soon as dinner is over, or breakfast is over. <laughs> and then at breakfast lunch, they'll do over. the same thing. Wow. They were doing two, three songs a day. Wild stuff. Just, in Elton, there's um, a, uh, a um, I forget what school it was. It was a clinic or an interview where there's a piano on stage, and somebody hands Elton, I think it's Faust. And they okay. put Faust, the, the novel or the book, on the, the piano stand. He picks a random section. He just starts making something up, and it's gorgeous. Just reading the lyrics off the. Wow. That guy's a genius. Yeah. And so is Bernie. Like, like talking about a poem becoming a pop culture sensation. Yeah. In that way is. Yeah, wow. Ridiculous. Well, and I'd be curious to know like how much tweaking of the original text Elton has to do to turn whatever Bernie's writing into like a song form. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you may know more. You, you probably know, I don't know more about that. I don't know that specifically, but I know that Elton would literally have a stack of mm-hmm. lyrics and he would go, nope. Nope, this looks interesting, and and just roll through his mm-hmm. stuff and just have a l- pile of so lyrics. One of my favorite bands growing up, and they they remain very beloved in my mind. And I think they were never like a hugely hugely popular, but they were really respected as songwriters. It was the band Squeeze. Do you know them? Oh, I love Squeeze. Okay. So that's another kind of like one guy writes the lyrics, one guy writes the music and melodies. That's mm-hmm. how they've always done it. And like, that's another example of, man, this is just such an awesome like marriage of two people's talents. Mm. With their songs, I would marvel at the way that the certain verses or choruses were like phrased and, and how, you know, if you read the lyrics just on a page like in my mind it would be structured a certain way melodically and the songs never really did what I expected which I thought was just like man how did they do that they mastered the ear candy thing in that decade they just like um, I also agree with that and one thing we were talking about drumming like shaping a song so Mm -hmm. their big hit um Tempted? Uh, yeah, tempted. Mm-hmm. And a professor of mine showed me this. Is the drummer is just playing pocket. Gilson Lavis. Yeah, I mm-hmm. thank you. 
he's playing all the way to the, I think it's the middle of the second verse, and it's the, and he, it's like two minutes in, and it's the first time he hits like a crash cymbal of any kind, mm -hmm. and it, it, for two minutes just playing pocket, and just like all of a sudden, just, yeah, 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 and it's the first, it's like ear candy, and that like extra bit in the drum part that just pops out at you, and then all of a sudden, you're at that next level. Mm -hmm. And I love I, that. I, I love that too. I'm so, I'm so psyched that you dig that because uh, I actually just heard that on the radio the other day. Oh yeah. And it was they were another band as a drummer. I thought that guy was a really underrated drummer to be honest mm -hmm. with you. Amazing pocket. His fills were simple, but like so impactful with so little. Mm -hmm. You know. Like in that third verse, since we're going to totally geek out about That's this, fine. <laughs> you know, in the middle of the third verse, you know, I'm like, and that was the, that was the first fill I ever learned where it had to start with my left hand. Oh my god! <laughs> and I couldn't get it for like ages. I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> I'm crossing over my sticks and I keep clicking. Mm -hmm. What is that? See, I ran into that. That's exactly bingo. what happened. Oh my god. <laughs> Doing the come together come together fill. I had the oh, same yeah. problem. <laughs> Starting <laughs> left handed. Mm -hmm. And for years I played traditional. I just I switched maybe a couple years ago. My hands just <laughs> it's not keeping up. But uh yeah, that's, that's wild. But, I'm good, I'm thank good. you. Thank you. Are you sure? I'm great. I'm Do you sure. need some? Do I need some more? I've been drinking <laughs> 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 Have you been partying all night? You're gonna need a little more. <laughs> Got your back. Got you. Um, what was I saying? Um, Ringo. Phils. Oh, Ringo. Yeah, Phil. But actually, Squeeze or the lead singer of Squeeze was just on um, live from Daryl's house. Oh, I can imagine that. You ever was see pretty... that show? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good. Daryl Hall's amazing. He's the opposite. He can write great songs and he can sing out of them. Yeah, that's a whole thing. <laughs> but lest we not forget, Oats. Oh, that's true. Okay, so that must it's be credited. Hall only had like one solo album that really did anything ever. That's true. So you think that the only reason he was successful is because of Oates? I think you need the you need the pairing. The pairing. Yeah. I heard a rumor that they hate each other and they need separate dressing rooms, uh. and they'll come uh, from opposite sides of the stage for a live show and never look at each other. And when I, they're I, done, I don't want to believe that. I, I can't. It I was can't. a friend's father. Uh, had like a charity show somewhere, mm -hmm. and that's where I heard the story, and they had to talk to them separately. <laughs> now this might be inside baseball. I don't know if it's true. It's uh, just know. what I heard. Well, I think when you're in a working relationship for that amount of time, yeah, maybe it's just a healthy thing to have your own space. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember when. Uh, my band back in uh, it was like between the call fields and Ike so it was called the John Fay Power Trip it was like a brief solo period mm -hmm. in 99 we opened for REM at um in Camden and we wanted to meet them and we're told well <laughs> you know like they all had their own bus <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm like all right, I guess we won't meet on that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you have to pick which member of our no. you want to meet. <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't meet any of them. 
sadly, but it was still like an incredible experience. Oh, my uncle had a similar story. He used to run uh, security at uh, Capitol Theater. And, oh, nice. um, or he was part of security, and he got to walk Mick Jagger up to his room after the show. And Mick Jagger's very quiet. But the thing he thought was weird was he's walking by each one of the, the Stones' rooms, Rolling Stones' rooms, mm-hmm. and they're all listening to their own music. They're not listening. They're not. They're listening oh, to their Wood is listening to Ron Wood's solo records. Yeah, that's what I mean. No, no, no. <laughs> like they're only listening to Stones music. Like Keith Richards is listening to like I can't get any satisfaction. Like playing along. Oh. And it was. He thought that's weird. <laughs> or maybe they were practicing for the next show. I don't know. I wasn't there. Well, you know, one thing that you can say about them, I mean, their new stuff is not horrible. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, it's not horrible. Okay. I mean, like they still care about like writing new stuff. It was kind of cool to see that. It is interesting. You know I mean? And it, uh, the, the Lady Gaga story, like her being, I think it was across the hall, or she came in. They, like she's singing on the new single, or something. Oh yeah, yeah. She's I on the new tune, and uh, that's fascinating that they're in, like involving like the, the new, like not new, newer, but like pop artists of today. Well, you know, I think it's just they're probably among the most savvy. I mean, to last this in, long. And yeah, I would say. Takes you out of your little vacuum, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah. I mean, how many Lady Gaga fans would just automatically be like, "I wonder what the Stones are up to." <laughs> it's like, oh, I'll check it out. It's kind of, you know, what it reminds me of. You remember when Kanye? Uh, I don't know if you remember this. When Kanye wrote a song with Paul McCartney, or or they did something together. They had a tune, oh, yeah. and everybody went, "Who's this Paul McCartney guy? He's gonna break this guy's I... career." do remember that happening. And the internet blew up and we're all like, what are you guys talking about? Well, that actually was the first time I realized, like, you can't assume anything. You can't assume somebody knows anything mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. Like, that was just, I mean, uh, people knowing who the Beatles are for, like, the vast majority of my life, I mean, that's the, that's the same as saying, like, you know, the sky is blue, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and, and at no that clue. moment, I was like, Holy fuck. Mm-hmm. You can't assume. <laughs> no? In fact, there was a, a, a TikTok or an Instagram reel that went very viral recently. This guy, uh, I think his name's Anthony Fantano. He was interviewing this kid, young kid, looked like 18, 19. And the guy said, give me a band or an artist that you think is overrated or under, no, underrated. Okay. And the guy goes, the Beatles. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, they have no hits. And he starts listing off songs. He's like, what song? Who? What? Meanwhile, the Beatles have how many? They're not the most, um, they don't have the most gold records anymore, but they're close, top five. I know people use this phrase too much, but it was a different time. It was a different time. You know, it's like the way that things proliferate now, it's instantaneous. Mm -hmm. You know, you actually had to go play in order to reach that number of people. And you know, back in the day. Yeah. And so, I think you do have to account for those things. Yeah. You know, it's just like, plus it's also like cultural impact. You know, when you think about like what they influenced and like everything that trickled down from them, so much of like my foundation of what I love about music is found in that catalog. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if that had never existed. I wouldn't be sitting here with you right now. No. I doubt it. They're, <laughs> they're the kings of songwriting for a majority of folks. I'm not speaking for everybody, but at least for me. I play in a Beatles tribute 
acts like once or twice a year. Oh, but like I didn't Andrew, know that. Andrew Lipke, oh, wow. um, S.C. Riddle, and um, Andrew Napoli, and Rory from The Secret Americans. Damn. A lot of folks. That's a super and, group. Yeah, so we do a Beatles show. We play the first set is like one one track from every record, and then the last set, or the second set, is um, all the Abbey Road from front to back. Wow. And it, it was a trip, because I didn't really know Abbey Road that much, but then like to have to play it straight through, you just go, these guys, I can't. It's just, it's insane. Mm-hmm. Like, if, like, the thing that blew my mind the most is the, the end of Abbey Road, where it goes from, uh, what's tune, what tune starts it up? You can take it on money. Going into mm-hmm. me, Mr. Mustard, and mm-hmm. she came in through the bathroom window, mm-hmm. into, um, that whole medley. I'm forgetting one. Golden Slumbers. It, golden Slumbers, but the um, the one that starts. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, what song is that? Dun, dun, Deca- dun, dun. Uh, it'll it'll come Poly- to me. Polythene Pam. That's in the mix too. Mm. But like the songs run one into the other, yeah. one into the other, and it's just they're all hits at the back of this record, and they're so short. And you're just like, what is mm-hmm. going on? They were the masters. I think it was just like. They were having so much. Um... Sun King is the name of the song. Oh. Actually, playing with those folks and doing the the Beatles tribute mm-hmm. really informed not this batch of songs I'm putting out, but like how I'm writing now. These a lot of ear candy, trying to do more harmonies and all sorts of stuff. It's just arrangement stuff. Are we okay? We're not chasing you. I'm just kicking you out. I'm just kicking you out. You know, if you need anything. Thank you I appreciate so much. you. I can always add. I can't subtract too late. Later. It's all right, Kathy. She's she's great. I love this. I'm going to mess with Kathy a little more often. No. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Do you listen to a lot of modern music? I would say. Okay. For my age. <laughs> That's that is a very fair thing to say. You know how many people I meet that are stuck in like whatever they listen to in their teens or the twenties, and they just like they refuse to well, explore. And I get why. It's just no, I get it. But if you're gonna be like a musician who wants to keep going, mm-hmm. you have to you have to try to be re inspired. Yeah. I mean, you can always go back to those records that you listened to as a kid, mm-hmm. but like. I think right now, for me, for my particular taste in music, it's it's literally the most exciting time since I was a teenager, mm-hmm. or maybe since '91 or two. Interesting, like the Lollapalooza. I mean, you know, as a as a professional musician, I came of age in the '90s, so like that whole era is very important to me. Mm-hmm. But like. I just saw Boy Genius at Madison Square Garden last month. How was it? Literally, like, so my first concert was when I was 15, and it was the police. That was your first uh, concert? Yeah, at the the Spectrum, with the Go-Go's opening. Shut up. Yeah, which is actually, I love them both, but, like, it really took the two-band bill to, like, get me to figure out how it was going to get there and all, mm-hmm. all the stuff that a kid mm-hmm. from Delaware has to do to get to Philadelphia for a concert. But, oh, that's true. Um, and so literally, like, the most inspired I've been since those two eras by current music. I just think that, you know, the combination of the three of them 
and I am a fan of all three of them separately, but there's just something about it that actually, like, I was with the with a good friend of mine who um, has been a friend my entire musical journey, and so we've, we've been to a lot of shows together. We went to this show together, and I, like, about like three songs in, I like tapped him. I was like, this is like literally like Beatlemania in here. Wow. I mean, it was so like over the top. <laughs> well, I saw them on SNL uh, yeah. yesterday. Oh. Yeah, this weekend. I think they did great on SNL. I don't think I don't think it really, really shows what their, I mean, they, they their performance was great. I think the sound was eh. Mm-hmm. But like that night at MSG, I was like, I have never in my life heard a more perfectly executed vocal performance by multiple people blending together. Like, it was like, holy shit. Mm. The blend, just to die for. I've never seen a show in MSG. I imagine it's similar to the uh, whatever Wells Fargo's called now. It was, well, it was my first time there. Mm. And I will say that it was different because, I mean, obviously... It's an iconic place, but it's an older building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it did not have like a Wells Fargo feel at all. In fact, it felt like very much more um, constrained in a lot of ways. You know, just the concourses are just like these little stairwells, you know, like leaving the venue took a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a point when, like, everybody's just, like, on a stairwell, like, trying to, like, I'm, like, I looked at my friend, I was like, this is feeling, like, weirdly 9-11 right now. Like, I'm not down with this feeling. Oh, my God, one fire. We're done. We're done. I totally was like, uh, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, but I, I can only imagine hearing them, because, like I, like I said, I saw SNL, and I listened mm-hmm. to a few records of theirs, but, like, just the hot, when you tour and you can harmonize that perfectly on the road in like different venues and it's just mm-hmm. just perfect almost just like you're just hitting a button like midi just vocals and just be perfectly in tune with one another mm-hmm. that's amazing and one of the reasons I, I like them so much is that their brand of songwriting as a group and as individuals it's right up my alley mm-hmm. because they basically do everything that I say I value. <laughs> oh my God. In songwriting. You know, very honest, very melodic, mm-hmm. very, you know, beautifully rendered. I mean, they are all really, really good singers. Would you say that they are, this is kind of grand, but would you say they're, they're the forefront of songwriting today? Or who would you say is I the mean, forefront? I mean, for me, they're pretty high up there mm-hmm. because. I mean, my tastes have always kind of veered toward female artists anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think just their perspectives on things are stuff that I just very uh, deeply like appreciate. In a weird way, I think like my own sensibilities as a writer are actually... like To me, I have more in common with like a female perspective as a songwriter than I do with a lot of male perspective. Really? Well, I think it's there's a certain sensitivity that is ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with 
how I grew up, what my background is, what, what I experienced as a younger kid. Um, I'm more comfortable being vulnerable than I think. I'm certainly not trying to generalize, but like my level of vulnerability as a songwriter lands more in a female level of sensitivity than a male level. Okay. Um, of course, that's from song to song, but like in general, like I just, for whatever reason, like I relate to this group of people mm -hmm. as artists. I vibe with that. You know what I mean? That's interesting. You know? I've never thought of, about it that way. Now that I'm thinking about it, I do listen to a lot of men and a few female songwriters, but I would think that I write more like a... Actually, you know what? I'm going to stop myself. I don't know. I don't have that answer. Well, you know, I mean, this is the only reason I'm bringing this up is because, like, I've had to think about that a lot, just personally. Mm -hmm. Just, in, you know, in terms of, like, assessing my own place as a songwriter mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but when I think back, you know, obviously, aside from, I think when I was growing up, it was very equal opportunity, you know, like I listened to everything, but like as much as I love the Beatles, I was also big Carole King and Carpenters fan. And then when you get got into the 80s, Yes, there was The Clash, yes, there was The Ramones, yes, there were all these, you know, like, male-fronted yeah, police, obviously. Mm. But for every one of them, there was Blondie, there was The Go-Go's, there was Pat Benatar, even, yep. you know? And um, so it was always very kind of, like, egalitarian in my mind. I mean, Tom Petty will always be one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Of course. And, you know, but, but I'm, I'm thinking about, like, who's out there, like, currently that is really doing it for me. And most of those artists are female-led. Um, Interesting. Which is not to say that, you know, the male perspective is completely absent. I mean, I like Jason Isbell a lot. Um... But you're drawn to more women these days than you would be the male voice or the male I song. I think so. Yeah. I, mean, and I, I, I can only really attribute it to, like, I just feel that many of these artists are writing from the place that I want to be writing from, mm -hmm. which is a very honest, vulnerable spot. Um, For me, like right now, I'm listening to a ton of... Uh, Tyler uh, Childers, uh, uh, God, Chris Stapleton, like I mentioned mm -hmm. before, um, and a lot more new Americana, new country. Yeah, your tastes run in that Americana yeah. vein. Yeah, like mm -hmm. it's, and I don't know, Stomp and Holler is like a subgenre of that, which I love. It's mm -hmm. kind of like what Mumford and Sons built, and then it kind of like kept going. Lumineers. Yeah, like I love thing. that stuff, yeah. and me and a couple friends of mine all share that sensibility. But like, um, I just love folk, country, Americana, mm -hmm. and I. In terms of ladies, I'm having, I'm drawing a blank. Um, but I, right now, I think I am very much in the male uh, perspective, and I don't know if it's because I'm trying to figure out who I am as a songwriter, which well, it could very be. well may be. I mean, you're you're about to put out like your first real full length. 
Right. Yeah, done done correctly. I, I had to put uh, a record out a while, like six years ago. Okay. And it was it was a, a bedroom record. Sure. And we, we worked really hard on it, but it was not to the standard, and it fell off. So we took two of those tunes, and we brought them to this batch of recordings. Mm-hmm. We have nine songs. Yeah. We went into the Retro City Studios. Matt uh, Muir? With Matt Muir. Oh, Matty, I love it. Matty's a, the man. That guy's awesome. Um, yeah. He actually, you know... Was, did he act as producer or just more or less just recording? If, your... we're, ta- if we're talking like um, um, inside baseball, mm-hmm. we never had that discussion. Okay. It was more of like he was. I think it started out as an engineer, and he, he's also a drummer and right. singer. So he was like. Well, plus, you respect his opinion, I'm sure. Yeah, and <laughs> I would ask him his opinion, and he would he would you know Maddie's very opinionated. He'll tell me what he thinks right off the bat. There's you know no uh, anything held back, but. Um, we booked the studio for five days had the whole band in there we recorded like ten tunes and wow. one of them got cut but um, it was my first real exploration into well what does me as a leader mean yeah from the drum sh- like I wrote these songs on guitar and I brought them to the band and I had to play them on drums which is you know fun I got to wear the songwriter hat and very more simpler drums Mm-hmm. To like to to support the songs that I was writing, right? Which was really exciting. Um, well, that has to be like a really cool experience it's for different. you because you're you're now like wearing that hat, mm-hmm. and you're approaching your drumming from a new perspective, probably. We well, you know what's funny. I didn't think about it till after. Is I wrote the tunes, and then we went into the studio. I automatically went back to um, freelance mind, which is somebody wrote these. How do I support them? Uh huh. It wasn't intentional, but it was like, uh, so oh, you separated I, I yourself. defaulted. Yeah, like uh, what is it? Um, not pigeonholed. I, <laughs> I compartmentalized. Yeah. Them, you know, like, and it wasn't intentional. I went in and like, okay, these are the songs. How do I make these better? And it wasn't like creating crazy drum parts, which people might expect. Yeah. Because I've been freelancing for so long. I played for, um, you know, like a jam band outfit that like toured the East Coast. I played for lots of songwriters, Emily Drinker, John Gilbride, all mm-hmm. these other people. Yeah. Um, Brittany Ann Trambaugh, but like, I really thought, like, what what would I do for a songwriter if this was their project? And that was really exciting. Yeah. And um, I think we had the studio for like 11, 12 days over the course of two or three months. And what what came out was an honest record of how I was feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for this record, I have a few things that I think will be like really resonate with folks, and some of them were selfishly written. I wrote for me, like this next song that I have coming out called uh, "At the End of the World," mm-hmm. is very much about my anxiety and how we shape our anxiety. Like when something goes wrong, yeah, and it feels like, oh, my life's gonna crash and burn. My career is over. This, that, the other thing. It's, you're making the end, making it be the end of the world. Does well, that make any sense? When, when I heard you say just now that you wrote it for you, I, my immediate thought was, I bet you so many people are going to relate to it that you're going to be surprised I hope at so. how much it resonates. You know, like I think the, the as a songwriter, like I think it's important to get into that mindset like you are writing it for you mm-hmm. because then you're not like making any kind of calculus about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And not always, but like a lot of times that'll be the thing that really connects with people when you're not thinking about connecting with people because you're sharing a part of you that you may not even know at the time that you write something 
is going to yeah connect with folks connect with people yeah and I um, and you know what's funny is we did the record and uh, I'm proud of what we did but the more and more research I'm doing it's kind of like I shouldn't ever write for other people no one should you should write like what, what am I feeling at this moment have that honest like you said yeah. like that honest perspective and then later you can think more business like alright what's probably like you know the hit or what's the one that's going to resonate the most and it's never the one you think it's going to be I don't think yeah. I've ever once been right about that <laughs> <laughs> well for your song in Philadelphia like did you think that was going to resonate as much as it did no not at all. It's fine. Because I, because I, you know, what that's, the part of that song that seems to have had the staying power and, and resonating with people is really only the surface part of the song. Like people, people will often say to me, oh, you wrote this great Philly anthem. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it was not intended to be that. It was intended to be like the almost like the, I mean, obviously, like the arrangement of the song is pretty rock and anthemic in its presentation. But like, where the song came from, it was almost like written as a lullaby to my kid. You know, like the whole backstory is that this is a song that was inspired by my newborn son not sleeping. And so this was written driving down Broad Street at two in the morning. An interesting thing that I tell people is that I don't consider the song to be written about him. The song is about me because what the song really is, I'm trying to like project this feeling of yearning that I had in that moment like you don't exist as an individual anymore Mm -hmm. your whole life is dedicated to making sure this being stays alive Mm -hmm. like you could see city hall in the distance you're driving down broad street from like the the outskirts of town and like it was almost like this thing that's drawing you to it and so it's so whatever that represents in your mind and in my mind it was like uh, freedom (laughs) Um, feeling like I was my own person again mm-hmm. you know so like the question like baby do you want to take a ride into Philadelphia like I'm technically asking it of him but it's like we're going there anyway because <laughs> I need because I do need this. to go I need to go that's right um, because you know ever since I was a kid like the city of Philadelphia like I did not grow up here I was born here but I did not grow up here I grew up in Delaware mm-hmm. and so even as a teenager like making a pilgrimage to South Street to go to fucking Zipperhead to buy your Sex Pistols t-shirt <laughs> is a big deal yeah and you you put the whole idea of going to this place on a pedestal and that never has never left me even though I'm you know I mean, I don't live in the city limits, but I'm a fucking Philadelphian. Like, mm-hmm. I, I spend all my time in the city. I work in the city. So, and it's never lost that feeling for me, no matter how old I get. Mm-hmm. You know, my father was born here, so there's a lot of emotion that I attach to that. You know, so to have that kind of in a snapshot translated into a song that seems to have resonated with people is a very special thing for me. Yeah. Like, to your earlier point, you never know. Our band had a full-length album out at the time, 
and um, I did not select that as a single in my head. Yeah, it, it took um, Jackson from WMMR to do that. That's really interesting. And, um, he was basically like, well, I'm picking this. This is the song. I don't care what your opinion is. <laughs> and thank God he took a hard line with me because he was right. Were you uh, pretty hard in your stance back then that this is not the single? I mean, I think back then I, I don't know that I took a hard stance. It's just that I, there was one song on the record that I knew people really liked when we played it live and it was in my opinion I mean to this day like I think that as songs they're both of equal value in my mind um, and the other song is in, in my own opinion like one of the best songs I've ever written but you know it's not like he didn't like it it's just that you know for the purposes of what he was trying to do because this was they were picking songs for like a local music yeah, like local CD. pick of the day. Yeah, I see. Like a, like a, like MMR was for the first time since like the Hooters getting behind local music in a serious way. Hmm. So this was a CD that they released. Oh wow! And our track was track one and of course it makes total sense from their perspective well into Philadelphia yeah you open the whole in, record instead of this you know poor bastards you know emo ramblings and this other song <laughs> that's what my record's called no, just kidding. poor bastards emo ramblings yeah. so, <laughs> we should make a band <laughs> yeah, let's do that poor bastards emo, well, emo let's, ramblings let's talk more about your record yeah, okay. though like but oh it's so I like how you're approaching rolling it out. Yeah. Like doing, like I don't know how many singles you're planning, but you have two out currently. Mm -hmm. yeah. You have one coming up pretty soon. Yeah, there are nine songs total. So how many are going to be singles before it all comes out? Uh, I guess eight of them, and then the ninth one will be the record itself. Oh, wow. So the reason why, and this is just research I've done. We're in a singles market, yeah. if you want to talk business. So I was like, okay, how do I, because I, you know, records are expensive. How do I, <laughs> how do I promote the longest I can without being old mm -hmm. or getting old or um, just so I have enough time to recoup for the next thing if I do another thing. Yeah. So every six weeks I put out a new track and um, I have a performance video that goes with it and then I was trying to make lyric videos but I'm behind on that. Don't ask questions. Don't ask about well, Listen, that. I'm trying. I have still owe a lyric video for Ghostwriter. <laughs> yeah, so you know. Yeah, you know. I know the you know. Yeah. So, but the idea was how do I give each song a chance? Yeah. Especially with algorithms or what, what ha whatever have you and I'm just I'm learning more and more about you know Spotify or Apple music and how to get your stuff to hit exactly where you need it to go mm -hmm. so the first song I put out Matilda I'm doing all this write-up stuff and I think I hit something because then it Spotify just sent it to a ton of people yeah, it did got, really well mm -hmm. um, well I want to get your opinion on something in a minute but go ahead okay. keep going but each song I was like well if I can send this each one each song to it's like what I think is its audience I think cumul cumulatively I'll have some sort of a base of an audience that mm. I can build from there. Right. So right now I'm looking for my audience. Yeah. With each one of these tunes, like it's not each one of these songs wouldn't be necessarily the same 
barrel genre wise but mm -hmm. I'm kind of right now I'm throwing out the lines and see what catches because right. I am each one of these songs but like that, the, to find a, a fan base for it has been right. the interesting part I'm curious because you're coming at this from the perspective of you know like in your own words your first yeah, super like, serious like full record, release yeah I'm sure you are aware of all of the news that's come out from Spotify and Bandcamp in the past couple of weeks, you know, hmm. where, you know, they're basically saying to artists who don't have a thousand streams on their song, like, whatever you would have made from this, we're not going to give it to you at all. Mm -hmm. We're going to put it into this pot. Like, does that in any way change your perspective on focus focusing on the effort that it takes to get that audience through streaming or are you more resolved I think well there's an argument for both sides you know the money thing is super important but we weren't get, gonna get paid that much anyway if you want to have that argument <clears throat> you know well we, we all yeah. dislike what streaming is doing monetarily right for us it's awful but <laughs> um, you wouldn't have found an audience right. as easy now as How you would back How else are you going to do it? Right. Yeah. So. You can hate Spotify. You can hate Daniel Eck, whatever. Or, you know, Bandcamp, for me, people don't listen to Bandcamp as much as back, back in the day when they used to buy records and they could listen just like on a Bandcamp player or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's all streaming. And we're not making that much off of streaming. So how do we find the most people? get the most engagement and then you could sell off the back end of that like you know how Spotify is connected so to Shopify you're treating music as like a loss leader like that you're not even like thinking in terms of like this is where the money's going to come from it's what you can sell to your audience that you develop through streaming yeah. at a later time whether it be a concert ticket a t-shirt or whatever exactly yeah there's I don't know why we're still like it's over the, 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 the CD sales record sales it's over we're not going to make our money from that. I think for me, it's more of like, what do I want to use my um, resources and time doing? You know, like I have the, the tremendous fortune of, of having a network that's been built up over three decades. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to turn to those people, what's going to be the most beneficial? Does it make more sense to try to put all my energy into go stream this song so that I can somehow get to new people or do I focus on well if I can get like 10 new patrons on Patreon for $2 a month that's that's like 8,000 streams <laughs> no you're absolutely right you're you absolutely know. right I think Patreon we should all be doing it yeah. I'm not right now because yeah. I'm strictly focusing on yeah. finding the new people but that, yeah everyone should be doing but it's, that yeah it's, I think I think that there there has to be like a like a what do they call it uh, how many legs in the stool <laughs> are we are we trying to build here you know what I mean like well, I think about that all the time I know that streaming in the long run I could monetarily do okay yeah but like you're saying it's not no longer one leg like like in the 90s I'm sure it was like how many records did I sell in, in merch and it was it was it was a much simpler time yeah like, um, 
No, I think this is a really interesting conversation because uh, I'm just, you know, I, I also think it's a matter of like your perspective as an artist and also where you're at with, you know. Oh my God, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if you're you're still in the mode of trying to find who your audience is, you got to do what you're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't understand why. Okay, hot take, and this might bite me in the butt, which is. If you're mad about not getting paid your 40 cents, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're thinking smart enough about it. No. Like, I'm, people I'm, under a thousand I, streams. Look, I'm, I'm mad at everything, so <laughs> that's just me. Like, um, I didn't give it to you. Yeah, I did. What you doing? We gave it to you? No, I gave it to oh, you. I would have dropped it off the top. I'll be right back with your change. Okay. I'm 50. Oh, Thank you, God. darling. You might need that extra cup of coffee. You know what? <laughs> You're going <laughs> to... Your card is gone. It just showed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the $50 bill is gone, gone. Right. which is even worse. <laughs> this is the most Philly thing that could have happened. This is, this, uh, cheers. Cheers, my friend. This is looking great. Hey, by the way, a couple other things you should know about Rob Tate. He, too, has a podcast, a really good one. It's called Let's Take a Spin. It's got a very cool playlist format, and he shares tons of songs by artists he loves and draws inspiration from, and uh, you can check the show out exclusively on Spotify. And last but not least, Rob has a New Year's Eve show coming up at Fat Lady Brewing Company in the Maniunk section of Philadelphia, so if you want to ring in 2024 with Rob and his band, visit his website, robtate.net, for all the details. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rob. We are inching slowly toward our 30th episode here, and um, I'm sure there will be many more great diner meals and chats to be had. So until next time, I'm John Kim Fay, and I'll catch you again on Talking at the Diner. Talking at